We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. And today we're actually doing a special broadcast from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I have um, Allison Hillman, who is the director of Latin America programs for um, an international human rights group called Mental Disability Rights International. And we are in Argentina working to help um, develop uh, the user, survivor, consumer movement here and to address very serious problems of human rights abuses in the mental health system. So welcome, Allison Hillman. Thank you very much, Will. And I, I know it's it's been really, it's kind of really dreamlike to be here in Buenos Aires and there's traffic outside and we're in this hotel and it's been this really amazing, um, amazing trip. But this is not something that's new for you at all. You actually do a lot of traveling in Latin America and a lot of work uh, in around mental health issues in a number of different countries, not just Argentina, is that right? That's correct. Um, I direct projects in Latin America for Mental Disability Rights International, and currently we're working in Argentina, Paraguay, and Peru. And I've been with MDRI since uh, 2002 involved in this work. Well, maybe we can get started. Just tell us a little bit about how you did get involved, because I know you're also a survivor of the mental health system and have your own story. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, in terms of human rights work, I was involved in human rights work, been involved in human rights work for maybe 15 years and was always interested in um, promoting human rights and went to law school to do human rights work. But in terms of mental health, um, approximately 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and was hospitalized, you know, within five months was hospitalized several times. The first time I remember uh, quite vividly for five weeks and then had recurring hospitalizations that quite honestly I don't really remember how long or, or how many times. But when I finally did leave the hospital for the last time, um, I was uh, taking four medications and really couldn't, um, couldn't really even think for myself. And I remember going to an interview for um, to see if I could have social security benefits. And the interviewer asked me how to spell house. And I started H-A-W. And I stopped and I thought, I know I'm spelling this wrong. I know how to spell house. And I asked him, why can't, why doesn't my brain work? And he didn't give me any response. But little by little, uh, my medications were reduced, and uh, I went to law school, graduated from law school. During my last year of law school, actually, um, I was an editor of a student-run publication. And an article came in from an, a non-governmental organization called Mental Disability Rights International. And in this article, MDRI talked about their work all over the world, and specifically uh, Mexico and Uruguay were countries that I thought, well, I've got experience working in Latin America. I had worked in, in Guatemala for three years prior to my run-in with the mental health system. 
um, and so wanted to return to do work in Latin America, wanted to do human rights work, and here was this issue of mental health and human rights, and I thought that it fit perfectly with, with what I wanted to work in and with my personal history. Well, so let's just back up um, just a second. So it sounds like you had a really negative experience with the, the medications. And then was it really just a slow matter of reducing the meds and then slowly starting to try and do things back in society that was able to help you get recovered and then make it through law school? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember uh, recently I, I looked back through some notebooks um, of things that I documented during that time. And I was going to uh, you know, see a mental health professional on a weekly basis. And one of the notes that I made in one of these notebooks was, try to read for half an hour a day. And that just really brought back to me how um, disabled I was um, from the medications and from kind of the trauma of the experience. But thankfully, I had a progressive mental health professional who did help me through this period. And gradually, my medications were reduced. But, but perhaps even more importantly, she encouraged me to get involved in work in the community. And so I found a community kitchen that needed volunteers. So I started going once per week. And you know, initially, I thought everybody's going to know that I have a mental illness. You know, everybody's going to um, going to point to me and say, wow, she's really weird, <laughs> you know, she's, she's, she's um, ill. And uh, little by little, I, I saw that, you know, I could relate to people, um, I could interact with people, but initially, even after, you know, only five months of having, you know, these repeated hospitalizations, I, I felt that I really couldn't direct my own life and um, really felt socially inept. And so it was important for me to begin to do something in the community and to begin to help others. And how old were you when this was happening? I was 27. And so um, you were able to um, slowly start to recover. Um, but what about the kind of experiences that got you into the hospital in the first place? Did those just kind of change on their own? Or what? how, do, how did that kind of get resolved? Um, well, I think that coming out of, you know, this, this period of being really kind of emotionally um, having extreme emotions, um, things began to be resolved. Um, I, I first experienced very extreme emotions when I came back from Guatemala. And I'd been living there for three years and uh, fell into a, a pretty profound depression on you know, reinsertion into US society. And I think that it was a combination of factors, but I think more than anything, it was just really severe culture shock. Um, I had come from a war zone and was was put back into a society where, you know, friends were worried about where they were going to go on their honeymoons and family members were worried about what shade of off-white they were going to paint the walls. And so it was just really surreal. Um, and, and so it was a combination of that and not knowing what I was going to do next. And so I fell into this depression and then kind of went to the other and you and you were in your mid mid twenties, which is also a, a time when just so much stress of coming out of family and school, and then like what what am I going to do next, and how am I going to get on my life mm -hmm. on my own, which is a very stressful time, and it's often 
a time when people do have their kind of first sort of hospitalization, first crisis. I mean, that that was the time when I had my first um, first experiences. Then also maybe is it is it possible that maybe some there was some trauma growing on in terms of being exposed in this war situation with Guatemala and bringing that back into the U.S. and then having that sort of effect too as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that that was also a factor. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was definitely a, a challenging. Um, challenging three years um, was witness to some things that you know we don't run into every day here, um, and and so I think that was definitely part of it—the trauma of being in a being in a war-torn country. So you and then you were able to go through law school, and then after that is when you got involved with Mental Disability Rights International. Um, so just tell us in general what is it that Mental Disability Rights International does, and then we can talk a bit about the specific situation in Argentina and some of the things that we've been doing um, on our trip here. Sure. MDRI was founded in 1993, and it was founded to work for the recognition and enforcement of the rights of people with mental disabilities, which at the organization we understand, uh, we include people both with psychiatric diagnoses, but also people with intellectual disabilities or cognitive disabilities. Like uh, developmental, developmental disabilities, like Down syndrome, that kind of thing? Yes, that and also what was previously called mental retardation, um, or is also called mental retardation. Um, and, and that's because we do investigations and monitoring in closed institutions. We visit psychiatric hospitals, sometimes orphanages, sometimes what are called social care homes, and we find a variety of people with disabilities there, not just people who have been diagnosed with psychiatric disability or illness, but people with intellectual disabilities, uh, people who have drug addiction problems, people with epilepsy, people with a range of other disabilities. And this is in not just in Latin America, this is also in Europe and Asia, is that right? We're working currently in Eastern Europe. Um, we've worked in the countries of uh, Hungary, Kosovo, Serbia, Romania. Uh, we've worked in, in Russia um, and Turkey. And in Latin America, we've worked in Uruguay, Mexico, Paraguay, Argentina, and Peru. And I just want to give a shout out to Lori Ahern, who is your colleague and someone that's been a friend of mine for uh, a while. And she's actually was a, a guest on, on Madness Radio, I guess, last year. So if people are interested in finding out more about the work that MDRI does in Eastern Europe, which is what we focused on in the interview with Lori. You can check the archives for um, for Madness Radio. Is it, because um, when you're describing these closed institutions that mix a lot of different kinds of people, it reminds me of uh, things that I've read about the history of the asylums in the US um, where exactly the same kind of thing happened. There was a mixture of all these different kinds of experiences. Um, organic or physical problems were mixed with trauma and mental kinds of problems that didn't have a f physical and organic basis. And in fact, if you look at the history of psychiatry, this is kind of part of the source of a lot of the problem um, is this, this mixing and how um, the idea of biological classification and organic brain difference is valid in some cases for some people, but absolutely not for other people. But then if you've got this institution population that mixes them all together, you get a very, very confused science as a result. So is that kind of what we see in the work that you're doing? It's kind of like looking back at back in time almost with some of the ways that the asylums were they used to be in the more um, richer, more developed countries? Will, I'd say that that's absolutely correct. And what we find, um, I'll take two examples, Uruguay and Argentina. 
uh, you'll find these institutions which really are asylums in the countryside. And originally, these asylums were created as farms in the early 1900s. And the thought was that people who had uh, experienced extreme emotional distress needed to go to the countryside and needed to work on a farm. And so originally the idea was that people would go and work. I think there was also some segregation uh, you know, behind that. But these farms start, stopped functioning. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad, actually. I think <laughs> I, that might have been a lot better for me to go out and work on a farm instead of being at Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute in San Francisco. But they started; it started to change. The vision of this started to change. Yeah, it started to change. Um, the The farms uh, started deteriorating, and they've really just become warehouses for people. And what we've found is that um, people from the lower socioeconomic range of society are really the people who end up in these places. Um, we'll just talk briefly about Argentina, and here we've found that depending on who you talk to, 60 to 90 percent of the people who are institutionalized, 25,000 people are institutionalized in Argentina, um, 60, anywhere between 60 and 90 percent are there for socioeconomic reasons. So in the sense of they, they don't just don't have the money to go anywhere else or their family it doesn't have a room for them or they haven't got enough money to uh, rent a place or be able to support themselves independently? That's exactly right. And many people have lost contact with their families. Um, so, you know, they a person enters an institution and maybe for the first year they'll have family members that will come and visit. But we find that because of the stigma and intense discrimination against people who are diagnosed with psychiatric illness, um, family members you want to deny, and it's, so um, family ties become weakened over time, and eventually people don't have family members. So these folks might be, they might be behaving in ways that would be considered crazy or bizarre or different or strange, but they're really not at the point of needing so much, um, you know, uh, uh, specific kinds of care that they actually could be living with their families or could be living in the, in the community, but for lack of economic resources, they end up in one of the asylums. Mm -hmm. that, that is very true. Um, yesterday, we actually, I don't know if you remember, we had a, a meeting with some people um, who were users and, and survivors of the mental health system, and there were folks there who said, I just didn't have anywhere else to go. There was a woman who talked about being on the street because her, her, her family situation, she was suffering abuse from her husband and she had to leave her house and she was on the street and had nowhere else to go and a judge sent her to the psychiatric institution. So you get some of that as well. Yeah, and she was saying that she had absolutely no mental problems at all and kept saying this and explaining to this and yet she ended up being, I think, um, uh, detained involuntarily for like two years, is that right? Yes, yeah. So you have the, this kind of basic problem with people basically being there. I mean, no one should really be in these asylums, but it's especially extreme when, when they're there just as warehousing for people who are homeless or, or poor. Um, and then what are the actual some of the conditions that we've seen? I know we could talk about all kinds of different countries, but maybe we could talk specifically about Argentina. And also I should mention that people who are interested should check out the um, the really powerful and very disturbing and upsetting uh, website that 
MDRI has, which is mdri.org, and just take a look at the report that just came out, which is Ruined Lives, Segregation from Society in Argentina's Psychiatric Asylums, a report on human rights and mental health in Argentina, which really is the reason why we're here in Argentina today and, and doing this this work is this this report just recently came out in September. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about some of the, the findings, because it's pretty horrific what's actually going on with these people who've basically been, been abandoned by society in the asylum system here in Argentina? Mm-hmm. Well, we've found a number of abuses. Um, extreme abuses from people dying in fires in isolation cells. There was a particular institution in a province of Buenos Aires where within a span of three years, three people died in fires in isolation cells, and a fourth person died of unknown causes in an isolation cell. And you know, this is just really extreme. You would think after one fire in an isolation cell, they would take precautions to to prevent um, any type of injury in the future. So this was something that really um, caught our attention and we thought was very extreme. And there were, there were no real investigations with any of these cases, so it could have been an accident, it could have been a suicide, it also could have been a murder or some abuse from the staff or just who knows exactly what's happening but the attitude is just kind of like these are the I mean I know one of the um, people who was at the meeting yesterday kept saying look we're not garbage we're being treated like garbage and we're not garbage we actually have value but the system is treating us like and so to have these kinds of instances where these repeated deaths from fire and to not have any investigation is a pretty is a pretty extreme not just in the specific cases but an indication of the attitude that the system has as a whole here in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other than that, we've also found um, women who have become pregnant in institutions. Um, at this same institution that I was speaking about where there were these deaths um, in the isolation cells, we were there in December of 2004 and found a young woman, probably in her early 20s, who was maybe six or seven months pregnant. and on a review of her medical chart, uh, it was clear that she was in the institution when she became pregnant. Well, we went back in September of 2006, and this same woman, the day before, had just had a cesarean section. So this was her second pregnancy within uh, two years, and not only had she had a cesarean section, but the director of the institution had decided that she needed to have uh, her tubes tied. And so she was given a tubal ligation by order of the director of the hospital. The director explained to us that she's promiscuous. Um, so this is another very extreme abuse that we found. Um, other than that, there, there are lots of complaints of abuse, uh, both physical and, and sexual abuse in the psychiatric institutions. And really the most overwhelming abuse that we find is the lack of anything to do, the lack of appropriate treatment, and the lack of rehabilitation. You walk into an institution which might have a thousand beds and you see 90% of the people either lying in their beds or lying on the grounds, um, really doing nothing all day. So just the conditions are enough to drive you drive you crazy. 
Um, so what were some of the other abuses that you, you found? I know there was a lot of question of like the hygiene and the health care in the system. Yeah, particularly in some institutions, um, the bathrooms were completely unusable. Um, I'll have to say in all the institutions that I've that I've been to, there was one particular institution where uh, you couldn't even step foot in the bathroom, and when, when you tried, I, I became nauseous. It was just really... And so people would uh, use the, the patios and, and the, the areas outside um, for their necessities, um, and this, of course, created a, a, a pretty extreme um, health situation, health emergency. Um, other than that, we've found institutions with um, wires hanging from the ceilings and broken glass and uh, physical infrastructure that's, that's just falling down. What about abuses in terms of punishment of the patients or um, abuse by the staff, the use of restraints, electroshock, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. In one particular institution, which is a, um, it's called a, a psychiatric penal ward, which is where people who are either um, sent by, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, or people who have um, mental health issues once they're, in, once they're in the criminal justice system, uh, go to this psychiatric penal ward. And upon entrance into the psychiatric penal ward, they're detained, we were told by staff, for 10 days in very small isolation cells with no natural light, no access to a bathroom, naked. Now, they had told us that this was a way that they would observe people when they first came into the institution, but what we found was that there were people who had been there for months, and in fact, there was one man who had been in a tiny cell for a year and a half. Um, so this, this was one of the more extreme abuses that we encountered. So this is a form of systematized torture, basically, as an institutional uh, business as usual, really. I guess I would have to agree with that statement. Now, I, I do have to say at this moment that there have been some reforms within this particular penal unit and that government authorities are taking measures now to reform the unit both in terms of in infrastructure and also the way that they deal with people upon entry into the unit. Um, but there are still serious abuses that that go on. And this, the you, you mentioned like a thousand beds, but there's also like a huge overcrowding in these asylums. Yeah, that's right. Um, we walked into one ward. Actually, you can walk into any ward, and you'll see a very large room with just row to row beds, with almost no room to to walk between the beds. And then you've got a staff to patient ratio that might be two staff people to a hundred women in a ward. So there's absolutely no personalized care, so to speak. There's absolutely no rehabilitative treatment. People are basically just being warehoused. And um, these are mixed gender hospitals, so men and women are, are in there together? There, it, There's uh, different hospitals. Within the city of Buenos Aires, there are four major hospitals. There's a hospital for men and a hospital for women. Um, and then there's a hospital for children and an emergency hospital, which is exclusively for men. In the province of Buenos Aires, there's a thousand bed institution that's mixed, both men and women.
so in the mixed institutions, I imagine that um, sexual violence and rape is an, is an issue also, I guess, in the male institution as, as well, because we know from the prison system in the U.S. this is a serious problem that doesn't get addressed. Mm-hmm. Well, even when the institutions aren't mixed, like um, El Moyano Hospital, which is the institution for women here in the city of Buenos Aires, there were uh, many complaints of abuse, and in fact, in December of 2005, there were a series of articles in the in the newspapers about sexual abuse, about women being prostituted, uh, about um, medical trials without any type of conform informed consent. So there was physical and sexual abuse by staff, perpetrated by staff, and even from people who were coming from the outside of the institution. You know, regardless of the fact there weren't male. Um, patients, so to speak, um, but even in the, the segregated institutions, we find lots of abuse. Yeah, this is just, um, I mean, I again, I encourage people to check out mdri.org, which is a Mental Disability Rights um, International's website. There's a, a long, detailed report about the investigation that they did. It's just, it's just devastating what you're describing. It's really a nightmarish, horrific situation. Um, and I guess, I, I mean, I, the other piece of the puzzle is that p- this is, people are experiencing this because they don't have legal rights, that there's no real court process or legal process that allows them to um, defend themselves or to, to not get thrown in this institution in the first place to get out when they're put in. So is that is that the case that the legal system itself is just completely failing these people? Mm-hmm. The legal system is failing people, and also the civil codes, as they are written in Argentina, um, don't protect people who are institutionalized in psychiatric hospitals against arbitrary detention. There's a, within Argentina's civil code, you can be detained if you, let me, let me see if I can remember the exact language, Um, if you are a disturbance to your neighbors. So I, that's not exactly the, the language, but, um, but it's something very similar. You know, if you disturb your neighbors, they can go to a judge and ask you to ask that you be institutionalized. So it's really, ex- there's a, an extreme, broad uh, language in the civil code that permits almost anyone um, who has been diagnosed or who has um, drug or alcohol addiction uh, issues to be institutionalized. So if you're vulnerable and you're poor, then you can basically get get picked up in these kinds of situations. Get picked up and have absolutely no opportunity for what they call an independent review of your of your institutionalization. So you get put in the hospital and there's no process by which you can you can get a review of that. So you're one of the people who did the investigation of going into the hospitals and take what was it like? I mean, how did you get access first of all? And I mean, I mean, I just, it's it's nightmarish to kind of consider, but what was it like to step in and to get a chance to talk to people? And what was it like being there for for you as someone who's been in the, in the system, obviously in very, very different conditions, but as someone who who also has been in the role of the patient? Mm -hmm. Getting into the institutions, we have a very um, strong local partner here in Argentina, which is the Center for Legal and and Social Studies. And they have a 20-year history of doing broad-based human rights work in the country. 
um, and they have access to government officials and they have lots of connections. So they helped us in terms of gaining access to the institutions. And their website, I think, is um, cels.org.ar. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and there's actually stuff in English on their website, so I encourage you to check that out as well. And then in terms of once you're in the institution and, and um, you know, it's, it's really challenging. It's really difficult. In some respects, you, you have to distance yourself. Otherwise, you, get, um, you can become completely overwhelmed by people's stories. Um, very often, you'll find people who fell into a depression because their mother or their father died. Um, and then here they are in the institution 20 years later and they, they don't have any way to, to, to get out and to reintegrate into the community. Were people happy that you were there? Were they very excited to, to talk to you? And was there a sense of, of hope at all that there were people coming in and investigating? I don't know if I, if I could say happy, but I think people were, were relieved to know that, that there were in, people who were interested in their stories. And I think also the other important thing to understand is that you didn't really get a chance to do like a thorough investigation of every institution in Argentina. So we're really talking about what is the tip of the iceberg here? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that that's right. We document in the what we call the methodology section of the report of every institution that we visited, but um, we only visited you know, eight institutions in the city in the province of Buenos Aires, and then we visited a few institutions in some other provinces. But, um, you know, of the 25,000 people that are detained in psychiatric institutions in Argentina, we might have seen um, what would comprise maybe 6,000 of, of that, I would say, maximum. So, so after, you know, having been part of this report and doing these investigations, are you hopeful that the situation can change? Absolutely. You know, here in Argentina, there is a really um, vibrant reform movement. And you have people from all different sectors of society, from both within the government and civil society, who want mental health reform and who have been working toward mental health reform. And so at this point in, in, in our work here, um, that's something that we want to try to reinforce and, and help develop. So it really seems like the main priority is deinstitutionalization, that, that you're talking about 60 to 90 percent of the people who are in these institutions, even from the framework and standards of psychiatry, don't need to be there by any stretch. It's just a matter of, of poverty. And if there were some kind of social supports, economic supports, um, community services, that they would be able to be deinstitutionalized and come out of the system. So that's really the main main priority at this point. Yeah, absolutely. In the report, we make a series of recommendations to different um, government authorities. And, and it's actually very interesting. We've had lots of receptivity uh, <laughs> from different uh, government officials and people within civil society. So it's, that's been something that's, um, that's been very helpful. So what I, one of the things that I have, I've been sort of struggling with being here is just the difficulty of coming in as kind of an outsider and saying, look, you have problems with your society. This is, you know, these are these international standards. There are these international human rights um, uh, treaties. Then there's, there's conditions that have to be set up, and there's human rights here that have to be 
uh, respected. And then it becomes like a national sovereignty, self-determination issue. And that's sort of something that I was concerned about coming in. But actually, I haven't encountered that from the people that I've been been meeting with and talking to. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's much more of a spirit of collaboration. But what, what do you think about that? All of the recommendations that we have in the report came from people in Argentina. And we're not, um, you know, we're not telling people anything they don't already know. Um, but it, we interviewed a wide range of people from, from Argentine society. And the recommendations in the report are basically distilled from those conversations. Um, so, you know, I don't feel like we're, myself in particular, is, you know, somebody from North America who's coming in to tell you what to do. So we're trying to channel these different voices into um, a reform movement. Um, and I think people are very interested in becoming involved in in a movement for mental health reform, and that's something that we've heard throughout the three years that, that we engaged in this investigation. Yeah, and I think it's really important to emphasize the, the central role that CELS is playing, the Centro de Estudios Legales y Sociales aquí in Argentina, and um, our compañera Roxana Mandolara. It's been really important to be working um, hand-in-hand with the Argentinian, Argentinian human rights organizers and cells has a really interesting history that goes back to the military dictatorship and is, has been working on the process of democratization. I think what's interesting is the way in which the mental health reforms are really seem to be part of the larger process of democracy and human rights in general in Argentina. And maybe we should just say a little bit about, I mean, what are your impressions of this incredible society that, that we're in? I just, I've been so struck by the sophistication of the politics here, the diversity, the, the excitement and energy with which people are really trying to engage with really huge historic kinds of questions about how to have, how to create a society and how to collaborate and how to work together. And, and it's been really pretty interesting to see that process developing at the very sort of beginnings of a user, survivor, consumer, um, psychiatric expatient movement. Argentina is a really exciting country for change. And I think in all the countries that I've worked in on this issue, mental health and human rights, um, Argentina has the most sophisticated uh, civil society movement. Not only that, but within Argentina's laws, there are some very progressive articles. For instance, in the 1996 constitution of the city of Buenos Aires, there is an article that calls for deinstitutionalization and the creation of mental health services in the community. So you've got articles, you know, in these different laws, which which call for this, these types of um, reforms to be made. And you also have two very interesting uh, reform movements that have taken place, one in a province called Rio Negro and another in a province called San Luis. And these uh, two different reform models have been touted as examples um, for, of mental health reform and, and models for mental health reform. So it's a really exciting time. There, are, I feel like there were lots of actors within throughout the society that are very interested in reform. Yeah, I should say right before we arrived actually was um, the National Gay Pride March that happens. And um, I guess Argentina is the only Latin American country that has legalized um, same-sex marriage, which is really exciting. And there's a real progressive um, attitude here. The other thing I, I learned was that um, psychotherapy is, is huge in Argentina, like going to your, your and it's not just um, 
psychotherapy, it's psychoanalysis, like Freudian and Lacan psychoanalysis is really a very popular thing. And so I'm kind of wondering, what, how is it that the, these asylums can be in ex existing as they are in these sort of dumping grounds for people in a society that is so sophisticated and does have such a, a conscious, consciousness around human rights? I mean, what is it that happened that allowed the situation to develop to the point that it is today in your, in your view? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there is a striking dichotomy between people who can afford psychoanalysis and people who, um, who, who go to see an analyst and people who both can't afford an analyst but also have um, from a lower socioeconomic scale and also the stigma of someone who um, needs more more help maybe but in in um, quotation marks than someone who just goes to see an analyst. So, so why, why haven't the psychologists, the professionals in this society known about what's going on in the asylum system and been raising raising hell about it? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a complex um, question. Let's see if I can d um, respond to it more or less succinctly. Um, training of psychologists and mental health professionals here in uh, in Argentina has traditionally focused on individual attention. So it's been, you know, individual analysis, um, individual uh, clinical attention, and there hasn't really been uh, a focus on community mental health. And so that's um, a huge issue that we, that we hear time and again. Um, so people aren't trained to do community health, mental health. They're not trained to work with groups. Is there also kind of the belief that, you know, once you've crossed a certain line, you've got a serious mental health illness like schizophrenia or bipolar, that that's kind of it, and there's no sense of recovery and being able to come out of that um, experience? I think that, that for the most part, that's true. Um, recently, there have been some really interesting reform movements within, you, you've got different sectors within psychology and psychiatry of um, folks who really are supportive of reform and um, support the notion that people can be reintegrated into society, that people can be reinserted into the workforce, and that people can recover. And so there are sectors of, of the mental health profession that believe in this and that are working to, to make this a reality, but then you still have sectors of the mental health professional that still have a very biomedical model. And you know, once you're sick, you're sick and that's it. Yeah, it sounds familiar with the U.S. Um, one of the things that was interesting also is that you know the hospital system really consumes the majority of the mental health budget. So in a sense, it's kind of like the resources are there. They just need to be kind of shifted around in priority. And that's what needs to happen is these community, community service alternatives that people can get actually get support so they don't actually have to go into, the, into these hospitals and then they can have housing support and employment. I mean, that was, we had a discussion with, I guess, about 20 um, usuarios. That's what they're called. And we call ourselves here in, in Argentina, although, of course, the language is always uh, a question and open to dialogue and debate. But the discussion kept coming back again and again and again to having jobs, having flexible jobs, but having jobs and then having jobs that have dignity, that pay enough. And that's really the key. And the people really were defining this whole thing, uh, the whole mental health system problem, in exactly the way we're discussing it as a question of poverty. And, and there's a term, um, pacientes sociales, social patients, which I kind of wish that we had this in the US because we actually we do 
do have social patients. We have people who are in the system just because they're homeless, they don't have money, but we don't have a term for it. And so I was very kind of excited to hear this term pacientes sociales and, and to have people be aware of it. But at the same time, I guess you weren't there, but we did a presentation at uh, one of the universities and there were people who were questioning the term paciente social um, because it was a term that was used often by professionals and used often by the bureaucracy and wasn't bringing in enough of a political perspective on what was going on and wasn't seeing the context. So, um, so let me, let's, let's just, just talk about, we haven't got a very much time left with the interview, but let's just talk a little bit about the work that we've been doing the past few days, which has been really, really exciting. What were some of the high points for, for you? Definitely a, a meeting that we had yesterday with, as you said, approximately 20 people who, um, they, you know, we call usuarios or we call ourselves usuarios, which are basically users of mental health services. They were also, you know, users and ex-users of mental health services. But the really interesting thing for me and exciting thing for me about this this meeting was that people came from different sectors. There were three women who had been institutionalized, one who's living in a home in the community, two who are in a process of, of getting, you know, out into the community. Um, there were people from different institutions. Um, there were folks with, with different experiences in terms of um, their institutionalization, their personal histories. But people came together and were just really eloquent and moving and um, you know, Will, I think you said at one point, strong voices. You know, there were strong voices in that room. And so I'm really hopeful that there there can, maybe this can be the the beginning of, of, a, of, of a movement of users or ex-patients, because they're really, that's a void here in, in Argentina. There really isn't that. Yeah, it was also exciting that Agustina from the Icarus Project, um, the, who's the Buenos Aires representative of the Icarus Project, was part of the whole process yesterday. So m maybe let me take the other side of it. And what are some of the dangers of the deinstitutionalization process here in Argentina? Because I know that we've, we've had so-called deinstitutionalization in the U.S., and yet we still have a lot of problems with the system. It seems like, it seems to me from the work that I've done past several years, that one of the main things is that, okay, you have this push to get people out of hospitals, you have a focus on the importance of community services and programs in the community, and yet when it comes right down to it, the money's not there. Do you think that that's a danger, that that could happen, that people could just end up having problems in, in services that aren't funded or they're not funded well enough, and so the conditions are, are not good? Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's always an issue that you're going to run into and, and can also can always be a, a, be a, a problem. Um, we're hoping that because, you know, countries like the United States have had um, such a problematic um, history with this that maybe some of those those issues can be avoided. Um, I think people are very cognizant of the fact that that these are issues that we need to be, um, you know, very aware of and very attentive to. So I, you know, and there's some really wonderful mental health professionals who have um, and and others, not just mental health professionals, but attorneys and and, and others who. Um, have this in mind. And I think, you know, there's always the danger that you're not going to have the resources in the community that you need. Um, but I think that there's enough 
precaution at this point that maybe some of the that can be avoided. Yeah, I think also it just emphasizes how these issues are so related that we're dealing with poverty issues. And so questions of social justice and equality in society are really important to address. It also seems like one of the things that happened with the deinstitutionalization movement in the U.S. was just the attitude of the professionals never really changed. And so you have community services, but you still have this kind of asylum mentality. So you end up having the asylum without walls. But what was interesting is just the way in which there is, there does seem to be an interest in, uh, like the class that we went to a couple days ago was a interdisciplinary class in the university, a postgraduate class in something called collective health, which we actually don't have in the U.S., but is is great because the perspective that brought in, there are a number of people there who brought in a feminist perspective, people who are raising the larger issues of um, of uh, poverty and inequality, and a couple of the present the presenters were also um, dealing with issues of orphans and children, and with um, uh, people who use drugs, illegal drugs, and the harm reduction movement. So it seems like there's a lot of really exciting ferment happening here, and hopefully the ingredients for a very different kind of course for the future. Even though this first step of deinstitutionalization is is so crucial. So what other what other impressions have you had from the trip? in Argentina? Um, I think that, that your um, involvement in the project at this point and your contributions have been, have been really fantastic. And it's so important for folks here to see someone who's involved in this movement, um, who's had a history and who's overcome and recovered and is really someone who's working for change. And, and that's just so important. And so I'm really thrilled that you were able to join me on this trip and that you're working with us here um, to help develop this reform movement and, and most importantly develop a movement of people who were users or, or survivors or ex-patients um, to really have a voice and insert themselves in this process. Thanks a lot, Allison. I should I should say that that was not a setup question. I didn't. I had no idea Allison was going to say that. So thank you. I really appreciate that. And I, I just really anyone who's listening, who's interested in mental health issues, who's um, been in the system or interested in the political issues involved here, I really encourage everyone to have an international perspective because um, this is a global movement. The issues are global. Economies are global now. Societies are global. We have global media, and it's really really exciting to get out of the bubble of the United States and even if it's Canada or even if it's, it's even if it's tuning in to the BBC or checking out English language newspapers from other country online getting that uh, international perspective is really important the other thing that's really cool for me being here is I feel like I mean maybe I have some things to offer because of our experiences in the US but also I'm learning a lot just the way in in which people are coming together the the um, sophistication of the discussions that we're having is just incredible. And the people that I met from CELS, the human rights um, workers, is really, really exciting. I mean, just that's not something that we have in the U.S. where an established human rights organization that's working on state repression or working on torture issues or working on prison issues takes on a huge mental health health piece. What we have is a kind of a segregated legal defense and advocacy system where there are specialized 
mental health human rights groups, but to have the mental health be part of the larger human rights picture is really, really important. That's something we can learn from a lot in the U.S. and in other countries. So we are about out of time. Any closing remarks or anything else you'd like to add from um, your experiences in Argentina? What other work are you doing in other countries? You want to just mention that a little bit, some of the things that are, that are on, the, uh, on the agenda? Sure. Yeah, just before um, this week in Argentina, I spent a week in Paraguay where we've been involved in mental health reform there as well. And boy, that could be a whole nother radio show. So <laughs> I'll leave it there. And also, we're other than Paraguay, we're working in Peru. We published a report on human rights and mental health in Peru in 2004. And now we, you know, with recommendations, now we're working with um, people who are within the mental health system and their families to organize and insert themselves into political processes. So that's where we're at in terms of our work in Peru. Great. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Allison Hillman from Mental Disability Rights International. Thanks so much, Will. It's a pleasure. And uh, you've been listening to uh, Madness Radio. And if you're interested in information about Mental Disability Rights International, check out their website, which is mdri.org. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. WMD Kasilov 90.7 Anchorage 104.5